Welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, a podcast for fans of the guests who appear on this show, as well as fans of music in general, and a podcast for musicians, singers, songwriters, artists, entertainers who want to learn more to help them grow in what they're doing. I'm your host, Bruce Wozniak from Now Hear This Incorporated. Check out nhte.net and be sure you are subscribing to this podcast and telling your friends to do so as well. Besides that website, you can also find the show on iTunes, which is Apple Podcasts, and you can find it on Google Play Music, on the new Google Podcasts app, as well as on Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, and on the Overcast app for iOS. Plus, if you still aren't aware, NHTE is now available on Spotify, so be sure to follow the show on there. Joining me today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from California, my guest is best known for being the bass player for Pat Benatar for more than 20 years, including touring and recording. He also worked as an arranger with Prince on Under the Cherry Moon and served in the same capacity with Bobby Caldwell. His touring slash recording credits are a virtual who's who in music, ranging from David Foster to Sheryl Crow to Martina McBride, John Fogarty, and many, many more. And if all his music endeavors aren't enough, he is even the owner of a pizzeria. You've been hearing a song of his entitled She's Gone Away. It's my pleasure to welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, Mick Mahan. Hi, Bruce. Thanks for inviting me to your show. Yeah, Mick, absolutely. Thanks ever so much for taking time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. You bet. You bet. There's something rather pressing that we need to get to, but just to keep format, let's have you first talk about that song we were just playing called She's Gone Away. Okay. Uh, She's Gone Away was a song that was recorded at Skywalker Ranch uh, quite some time ago. Uh, It was done during the course of um, doing a library of music that we were going to do with the symphony. Actually, we did do with the symphony from San Francisco. But we did a lot of rhythm section stuff, and it had a lot of great players on it. Tom Scott, uh, Greg Bissonnette on drums, Burley Drummond, and Dutes on both on percussion, uh, Grant Geisman on guitar, and uh, let's see, we had different keyboard players on there. So, um, yeah, a few different keyboard players, but it was a wonderful experience. Well, it was just a song that I had come up with, it's a, you know, rather ballady and uh, just, you know, sort of a pretty fretless kind of thing. And when was that song done? We did that in 1999 or 2000. It's it's pretty old. Well, but I love how timeless it is because in listening to it, had I not asked that question, the listeners probably could have made the assumption that it's from the last few years and it just has that sound that stands the test of time. So it's right in my wheelhouse in terms of something that I enjoy for sure. Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's a little bit jazzier than some of the other stuff that I did, but we did a lot of jazz-type tunes when we were doing the library thing. Okay, okay. Well, anyhow, listeners, Mick is kind enough to make time to talk to me right now at what has been, and I say it still is, even in January, it's been a really, really troublesome time out where he lives, Thousand Oaks, California, is where the shooting had taken place two months ago, plus there were bad, bad fires that really hit home insofar as singer Wendy Wagner, the guest from Now Hear This Entertainment episodes 123 and 74, and her husband, 
drummer Chad Cromwell, who was on episode 196, they lost their house in those fires, and I mean gone, everything. So, Mick, this is real life here. People hear about folks like Wendy singing on tour with Joe Walsh or guys like Chad playing drums on Kenny Chesney's album or or heck, guys like you playing with Pat Benatar, and it all sounds so otherworldly. But like I said, this is real life. This is real people in real danger, really, really challenging situations. Yeah, it was a really tough time. Um, and it all happening on the same day was just uh, absolutely bizarre. To wake up and hear about the shootings that are right down the street from my house mm. and the shooter shooter being from my own neighborhood, mm. uh, that was pretty bad. And uh, I was just on my way to pick up my son at, when he's getting out of school. And within just a few minutes of me going maybe two miles, less than two miles, to pick him up, that fire had already started to go towards Malibu. So it was moving three football fields per second. Oh, my and gosh. It was just unstoppable, you know. And uh, so by the next day, uh, that was Thursday when it started, and that was the morning of the shootings. And uh, so by Friday night, I was surrounded on ten sides by fire. I had the Malibu fire behind me, the hillside fire. Uh, to my left, and then uh, the Wolsey fire to my right. So it was pretty bad, and uh, we were supposed to evacuate. But we and we kind of laid back a little bit. I watched what the neighborhood was doing to see if we were okay, and we were packed up, ready to go. But fortunately, we did not have to leave. However, the pizzeria was shut down for a couple of days because they were right in the fire zone. And, um, yeah, it was just a bad time, and... It's still not over because now we have the mudslides. Now that we're getting rain out here, we have roads closed again to Malibu because of mudslides. Wow. So it's been pretty rough ride the last two months. Wow. Is it, How long have you lived there? Are, are the mudslides something that you've experienced too many times, even, even if only once uh, before? Yeah, many, many times in California, I've seen the mudslides, uh, you know, in Malibu happen, and of course, uh, last year up in Ventura. So I'm pretty close to Ventura. Uh, Newbury Park is just south of Ventura, maybe about 20 minutes. And um, yeah, so I mean, I'm not a stranger to that kind of stuff, but and none of it gets any easier, whether it's an earthquake or, you know, they call it seasons out there, the fire season, the earthquake season, mm. uh, you know, jokingly, but uh, it's it's pretty intense stuff living in California. You know, you pay one way or another for living in this beautiful weather. Well, and as I said, at that point, it really becomes a non-factor, whether you are a musician, whether you are a bricklayer, whether you are a banker, the fact of the matter is, all of a sudden, every has everybody has one thing in common, and that's we're all in great danger. And and it's amazing, it's it's wonderful to see everyone come together and support one another, and do whatever can be done to help one another out during a situation like that. It's really if if there's anything that can make your heart feel good once you see that kind of devastation, it is people helping each other out. Yeah, it's a wonderful community here where people band together, um, and there's been many, many fundraisers. We've done two at the pizzeria, and then the money's dispersed to the association, and it goes to the families of the victims of the shootings and also to the fire people that were you know affected by that. So um, it's a great community to live in. It's very much a community. We stick together. 
Now, did any of that cancel Pat Benatar's shows, meaning, hey, look, I can't go play right now. I'm dealing with this. I don't know, maybe other band members were, or or was it unfortunately good timing for it to happen, and, and there were no shows of her scheduled at that time? Yeah, it was good good timing because uh, both Patty and Neil, they were very much affected by the Malibu fire. Um, oh. You know, they had to evacuate their house. And uh, Kevin Cronin from REO, uh, Greg Bissonette from Ringo's band had to get out. Dave Amato from REO Speedwagon had to get out. So, you know, there's a bunch of bands that were affected by it. Um, they were actually out of town at the time, but Patty and Neil were here. And uh, there's still back in their house. Wow. So there was some cancellations. I had some other outside gigs that were uh, not bad Benatar gigs, but I had to cancel those because I wasn't going to leave my house. You know, I just didn't know what the move was going to be if we had to evacuate and didn't want to be miles away because once the roads shut down, you're pretty much in a bad position. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you've mentioned it a couple of times. Let's, let's use this talk of the pizza place to, to, for openers, is it safe? What did it avoid anything from the fires? And then secondly, we can turn the corner by having you talk about how you got into something like that. No, actually the pizzeria, it was, even though it was shut down for two days, we, fortunately we didn't have any, uh, you know, fire damage to the, to the premises or anything like that, but we did have to close cause we were just on the line of what uh, they had the evacuation. So mm. right there in thousand Oaks, so fortunately, the pizzeria was not uh, affected too much by it physically. Just the business was down for a couple of days, and thank God we were okay. Gotcha, gotcha. And and then, as I said, how did you get into something like that in the first place, being the owner of a pizzeria? <laughs> the pizzeria. Everyone wants to know how I got into that. <laughs> well, I happen to be born into a Sicilian Irish family, and... Uh, but uh, my father passed away when I was really young, so I was raised very much in the Sicilian family mm. style. So I was very, real accustomed to great food all the time. And uh, then as I got older and I was going on the road, I would have good pizza and I would have horrible <laughs> pizza. And so I just became really intrigued by it and started to uh, really think about it because I always wanted to open up a pizzeria. I just some kind of involvement, romantic involvement with pizzerias when I was a kid. Hmm. And it just kind of led into this. And as I saw the music business changing and I had kids and I see how the world is changing and college is not necessarily a, a path to a great job anymore. And, uh, you know, it's just, there's, it's a different dynamic now. So I started to think about my kids, what can I leave them? And so I, I got very much into the pizza thing. Um, it's one thing that I've done that's outside of music, a little bit outside of music, and I'll explain that, but, um, I'm comfortable doing it. It's uh, very much an artistic performance kind of perspective when you're making pizza hmm. and, uh, it accomplishes almost the same thing as playing a great song for somebody and the fact that they enjoy it, you know, and they get into it and they love it and they compliment you and you know, you're doing something good for people. So it's kind of like that. And depending on how much they consume, it might be the same length as the running time of a song. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. But with uh, five or six different styles of pizza that we have, you know, you can come back again and again, and you might be even tempted to try two or three in the first go. 
Nice. So it could nice. take you some time. I like it. I like it. Well, it is interesting that you have something like that, a pizzeria, as a quote-unquote side project because we hear so many guests on this show talking about doing other things besides just recording, performing, touring, but it's usually something music-related. Although, to me, you having done arranging for Prince and Bobby Caldwell qualify as quote-unquote other projects. So, because I'm mentioning both of them, I know I'm supposed to ask how you got the opportunity to work with Prince, but honestly, I'm actually a Bobby Caldwell fan, so I definitely want to hear how you got the opportunity to work with him, too. Well, Bobby, let's see, I I had just gotten out of music school, and... um, I was introduced to Bobby and he needed some stuff done. And he basically hired me to do his entire library and just transcribe it note for note so that the band could perform it. But in the process, uh, you know, we became friends cause we spent a lot of time together. You know, he would show up at the house and he'd play the songs and, you know, just sort of helped me to get the voicings correct and, and how he was, uh, you know, conceived the songs. Wow. And Bobby, doesn't uh, he you know admittedly didn't know a lot of the stuff technically so we would put it together between the two of us i would help with the technical side of it and, you know he'd play the songs for me and uh great great talent and i had always been a huge fan of his so uh that's how i got introduced to bobby and ended up doing his whole library and then i did a couple arrangements uh one more for the road the frank sinatra version that he does I did an arrangement on that for him. But I'm curious when you say I got introduced to him and then you want to when you went on to explain the work that you did together, who introduced you? I mean, here you're saying that you just got out of music school and all of a sudden you're getting introduced to someone of his stature? And someone had to know someone somewhere. Somebody <laughs> somebody that I knew was dating somebody in his band or wow. some there was some connection like that. And wow. I just said, hey, this, this guy over here, you know, he can help you with your library. So Bobby called me up and said, hey, man, this is this. and You want to do it? And, uh, of course, you know, I was wanting to play in his band. So I was just waiting for the bass player to get out of the way. So I could get <laughs> 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 That's good stuff. Well, go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll let you I'll let you give us the same regarding Prince. How did you get the opportunity to work with him? Well, Prince, unfortunately, I never did meet Prince face-to-face. Mm. Um, yeah, my uh, buddy at the time was friends with somebody in Claire Fisher's camp. And Claire Fisher was actually the arranger that did all this stuff in France for Prince on, on, under the Cherry Moon. And again, he would send us um, cassette tapes or whatever wow. media that we could get the, the format on. And we would go through the arrangements and sort of not rearrange Claire's stuff because he's a monster. Late years behind what we were doing, but it was mostly transcribing and uh, you know little suggestions of of things. But uh, Claire did the bulk of the work. Okay, okay. And listeners, right about now is where I usually make some clever segue into weaving Tascam into the conversation. But even though I'm completely outfitted here with all kinds of gear from Tascam and use all their stuff. When I do on-location interviews, I'd really rather that you not just take my word on it, but consider how many guests you have heard on this show after I talk about Tascam. Say, wait, Bruce, before I answer your question, I just want to say, Tascam, yeah, wow. And then they go on to tell their stories about having used Tascam stuff. Heck, back on 
episode 205, Roy Orbison Jr. said that even his dad, the great Roy Orbison, used Tascam equipment. After all, the company has been around for more than 40 years. A lot of other NHTE guests have talked about using Tascam gear too. Jessica Lynn just last week, and prior to her on other past episodes, the Hazelrig brothers, Derek Norsworthy, Muriel Anderson, David Longoria. Listen to some of those episodes and their experiences with Tascam. And of course, check out the website Tascam.com for a huge selection of recording equipment. It's T-A-S-C-A-M.com. Mick, since I was asking you how you got connected with Bobby Caldwell and Prince, let's go ahead and get into all that you've done with Pat Benatar over the years, starting with first just talking about how that ever yeah, came to be in the first place. Now. Wow. So, wow. Yeah, we're approaching 25 years. Uh, yeah, uh, the Pat Benatar thing was kind of a fluky sort of thing where they wanted a girl bass player in the band because they wanted a very high voice. And uh, ah. okay, so they, yeah, I got the recommendation. I had grown up with Myron Grumbacher in Youngstown, Ohio. So he was already the drummer for years and years with them. But somebody else, uh, Barry Schneider, recommended me to uh, to Neil and said, you should give this guy a listen. So I was the only guy that was invited to the auditions. Wow. For whatever reason, I got, you know, got invited to it. And so we played once. Neil says, come on back, let's play again. So go back the second time. And he says, okay, time to meet the wife. <laughs> so Patty walks in the room and she goes, let me see your socks. And uh, so I show her my socks, they're white socks. She goes, you got socks, you're from Ohio, you're in the band. <laughs> and that was it. So 25 years later, I know people love that story. About oh, my gosh. Absolutely true. <laughs> but <laughs> that's what got me in the band. So I'm still here wearing the white socks and playing in the band. That's amazing, because I was going to ask you things <laughs> like, one of the questions that popped into my, my mind as you were telling the story, you answered, because I was going to ask you, you know, was Pat in the room, et cetera, et cetera. And you said, you know, no, initially it was just Neil. And then you said she came in the room. But I'll, I'll ask the other question anyway. So what happens in an audition like like that? And, and understand, Mick, that I'm asking this in part, uh, half of it is for the listeners who are just darn curious because they love music and they love music interviews and things like that. The other half is the listeners who are musicians themselves and are up and comers trying to get opportunities like that. So in an audition like that, is it you're going in and you're playing Pat Benatar songs or is it you're just playing whatever you want or how does that go? How many songs is it? How long does it last? Those types of questions. Well, it's, it's different for every, uh, every scenario is different, I should say. Okay. You know, with Patty, they uh, gave me, I think three or four songs to learn. So it was Myron, Neil and myself, the trio was playing. And I think that whole Ohio connection, um, you know, precipitated a really good vibe uh, between the three of us, obviously. And so I went and played the three, four songs and then, you know, come back and play them again, make sure that you're, it is solid. It is what you think it is, you know, and you have the right perspective and they check out your attitude. So every audition is different. You never know what's going to get thrown at you. Uh, when I went to audition for Robert Tripp, it was completely free. Everybody improvising, no music in front of you, not even a key center, no discussion. It was just play. Hmm. Uh, other auditions you can go in, you might have to read your ass off. Um, plus sing at the same time and it's grueling and they're 
I remember the days when there was a hundred bass players standing outside the door wow. to audition for these different bands. You know, it was big cattle call stuff. And fortunately I got a few of them, you know, um, Tony Childs was one. I think she auditioned almost 300, uh, wow. different musicians. Wow. And fortunately I, you know, I got that gig and that was a lot of fun because I really enjoyed her records and, you know, her approach to music and everything was the bass and drum thing and, and her music was a lot of fun to play. So I really enjoyed that. And, uh, but you never know what to expect. You don't know. I'm curious when you say back in the day, there'd be 300 people lined up for an audition. Were, were they outside so that you couldn't hear how other people were doing or was it? No, unfortunately, I'm looking at the people who are going to make the decision, and I also know I got 300 people on the other side of the wall who are listening to how I'm doing. Also, okay, so I should I should qualify the 300. The 300 may not be at the same time. You may not have 300 people in line, but you, I, there was a time when there was 100 guys, and yes, you could hear every one of them depending wow. on where you were in the line. You know, because these were the big sound stages that would normally house these auditions, and. uh you know, depending on where you were, you'd, you'd see your friends, you know, it was all the same guys buying for the same <laughs> gigs. So you'd see a bunch of your friends and wish them the best and you better. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> so you got the gig. But, you know, it was a, a very friendly atmosphere, I would say, for the most part. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, listeners, Mick appears on six Pat Benatar albums, numerous videos. He's obviously played on tour with her for, as he said, pretty much 25 years. And Mick, I want to make clear to the listeners, Pat Benatar is still playing regularly. In 2018, y'all were doing shows all over the country, no slowing down. No, it's going to probably be pretty good this year, too. I mean, we have stuff coming in, and this is the 40th anniversary for them, so uh, that's pretty huge. You know, if you make it to 40 years, you're doing good. But there's, you know, a lot of bands are going over 40 years now and up to 50 years. I think Cheap Trick is getting pretty close to 50. REO is getting way up there. They're over 40. So this year, I would suspect, is going to be a pretty busy year for us. Outstanding. Outstanding. That's that's tremendous. And, you know, congratulations to her, but congratulations to you because 25 years is also quite a long time. And that's that, that that's that's not an easy thing to do and uh it obviously speaks volumes to your talent but it also speaks to the relationship that you've built with them which is vitally important as we all know vitally important yeah to, to be able to hang for that long so yeah we're a pretty close knit group Okay, now it's time for Bruce's bonus. This is a segment here on Now Hear This Entertainment where I take off my hat as podcast host and put on my hat as president of Now Hear This Incorporated, giving a helpful tip for the listeners that are musicians, singers, songwriters, entertainers who are out there trying hard to make a go of it. Today's bonus is be careful when it comes to trying to sell your album in small group situations. Walk the line between letting everyone know about your album and that you have copies with you available for purchase versus guilting them into buying a copy because they feel like you're strong-arming them. In that case, they're not likely to listen to much of it, no less recommend it to others to purchase. So now you've made a sale, but was it really worth it relationship-wise as well as potential other sales? Tread carefully and finesse this one, my friends. And that is today's Bruce's bonus.
That's really great to know, isn't it? Very helpful, right? Bruce gives out a tip just like that on every episode of this show, and there's an easy way to get all those that he gave out over the first 160 episodes. The ebook series called Bruce's Bonus Book contains four volumes, and they're all available for purchase and immediate download at www.brucesbonusbook.com. Order yours now for helpful tips that you can apply to your career right away. Mick, there are a lot of listeners to this show who are up-and-coming singers, songwriters, musicians, recording artists, and so we'd like to ask some questions that will pull back the curtain for them on certain aspects of the business of a career in music. So when it comes to performing with an artist like you have with Pat for so many years, is that because you're on a year-to-year contract, or is it per tour or per album or how does all that work? And and then also, I don't know if this is the same thing or not, but how does someone in a position like that know that they have job security for a good long while? Well, I wouldn't say there's any job security in the music business because you never know. Um, you know, many, many artists change bands routinely mm-hmm. uh, just to get fresh blood in there. Some people last, some people don't. So as far as job security... Um, I don't think any musician has job security. Okay. It's, it's a tough business. Actually, very few people have job security even in the world today. Sure. The whole complexion of it has changed. And you can reference that back to when I was talking about my kids and college not being necessarily the way anymore. It's a little bit different uh, playing field now. But I think if you do a good job for an artist and you show up and you're sober, and they know that they can rely on you, that you're going to play at least the biggest percentage of correct notes <laughs> and play their music, uh, you know, with some sort of uh, soul factor in there and, you know, do a good job for them. Why wouldn't they want you back? Mm-hmm. Unless they're going to change the whole, you know, complexion of the band, then that's a different story. You know, if they want an all-female band, you know, all bets are off and you're not going to have that job security. But if you're doing the right thing for somebody, why would they not want to keep you? You know, loyalty is, is, is hard to come by on both ends. So I would say to anybody that wants to get into the music business, know your stuff. You know the artist's music um, as best you can. Know it inside and out because you never know what they're going to call. Um, and just, you know, do the right thing. But should they expect to be offered a contract for a year, or is it on a per-tour basis or per-album basis? How does that work? There's actually, I don't know of too many situations that are uh, per-annual basis or anything like that. It's pretty much, yeah. You know, if you're on the tour, obviously they're not going to change you up in the middle of the tour unless something really goes south. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, there's there's no particular contract that I know of with most people, some artists did have an annual contracts, but most don't. I think you're, you're just invited back if you're doing a good job for them. You know. I see. Yeah. So it's so it's you're the bass player, you're the guitar player, you're the drummer, you're the keyboard player until you hear it differently. Yes, exactly. Hey, that's the pitfall of being a sideman. You know, you're not the artist. The artist is the artist, and you're a sideman. And sometimes you're a band member, which changes things. But you can see, even in that instance, uh, you know, Look at Bunny was in Cheap Trick for a long, long time, and they made a change, you know. So it does happen. 
As a follow-up to all that, though, I imagine there are points in time when Pat Benatar is off the road, but also not recording. So what happens to someone like you during that quote-unquote downtime, at least for her band? Well, I've always had other irons in the fire, so to speak. You know, I've uh, since I came out to L.A., I was always uh, trying to be, you know, part of a band, but also sort of a hired gun kind of thing, or, you know, sessions and uh, any kind of thing that you could get your hands on, gigs, live gigs, working with other artists. Uh, you know, I always had a canvas of of different people that I would work for over the years, and, uh, you know, hopefully the session thing would carry a lot of weight throughout the year. And uh, so when you're off the road, then you're doing sessions, or you're writing television music, or you're teaching, or, you know, it's a myriad of different things. It's not any one thing that, that uh, supports you. Unless you have some crazy great gig that pays you a lot of money a, a week, and the retainer is not even a word that's in, uh, it's not even in the vocabulary, I don't think, anymore. Mm-hmm. Okay, but then getting back to the question I was asking about the contract thing, so if mm-hmm. you do have all these other side projects going, is there, I don't know what the word is, do you have to at any point, I don't, I don't want to say check with Pat Benatar, but say, hey, look, I got this opportunity with these guys here, and they actually want to go out on the road for two months. Is that cool, or sure. are you going to need me on an album or on a, on a, on a live show? Does that happen, or yeah, is that's, it... That's- that, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. You would just inquire about it. Say, Hey, what do we have going on at this particular time? Is there any conflicts? And you try to avoid the conflicts. I mean, they're going to happen sometimes, but, uh, I've never missed a Pat Benatar gig wow. even with two births of my kids. Uh, wow. you know, I was fortunate enough to, to fly back here to LA and, you know, be present for both the births, you know, Wow, that's outstanding. But yeah, you just check in and kind of see what's going on. What do we have on the books here? Are we working during this time? And You work it out. Okay, okay. Listeners, I'm joined today on the Now Hear This Entertainment Guest Line by bass player Mick Mahan. Visit his official website at mickmahan.com. We will have a link to it from the show page for this episode. And of course, to get the proper spelling of his name, you can just look at the title of this episode on your listening device so you can go to his website. He is also on Facebook and Instagram, and his website does list where and when you can go see him perform live. If you want to get in touch with our show, the email address is podcast at nhte.net, or you can even call our message line and leave a voicemail, which, by the way, could possibly even end up getting played on an upcoming episode. Just call 813-854-8000. So that's email podcast at nhte.net or call 813-854-8000. Mick, we've been talking a lot about all your work with Pat Benatar, but wow, I, I barely scratched the surface back in the intro with your list of touring slash recording credits. You have had some career, my friend. Wow. <laughs> well, I'm honored to, to, to be present with a lot of great players. That that list, and as I said, listeners, it it's just scratching the surface. David Foster, Cheryl Crow, Martina McBride, John Fogarty, and and Mick. It sounds to me like there's probably a lot of names that you've worked with. Just period. Overall, a long, long list that maybe aren't as well known as those that I'm mentioning, but have just kept you 
busy for uh, more than 25 years, let's put it that way. Yeah, I've been on here for quite a while in California, so, you know, I've had the opportunity to work with uh, a lot of nice people. Well, one project of yours that interests me is CTA, the California Transit Authority. You're a founding member of that band, which includes the original drummer for Chicago. Talk about that. Yeah, there was a a young lady, uh, Lisa Wales, who was a photographer. That uh, She worked for all the drummers. She worked for the drum magazines. And unfortunately, she got cancer, and so there was a benefit for her. And Danny had sort of become a recluse. He had taken off to Colorado, um, you know, when he got axed from Chicago. And so he had taken 15-plus years off. And wow. um, Danny was invited. He was one of the featured drummers at this um, benefit. So there was a house band. It was Mark Bonilla, Ed Roth. It's the band. It's basically the band. And Larry uh, was singing from Tower of Power. And uh, so that was the house band. And we played three songs with each of the different drummers. You know, David Garibaldi and Ian Wallace did some uh, uh, King Crimson stuff. And uh, Danny obviously did some Chicago things. And I think it just kicked him in the butt and made him want to play again. And uh, he said, yeah, this is my band. I want this to be the band. And that's just kind of how it happened. Mm. Outstanding. And so CTA... How how does that work in terms of what we were just talking about? You know, is it is it when I when I don't have an obligation to Pat Benatar, I'm doing a lot of things with CTA or kind of what what is that schedule? How does that get put together? Given the fact that as you said, so many people nowadays are as musicians working in so many different projects, it's tough to coordinate everyone's schedules. Right. So, is there any kind of regularity with CTA? Well, that's the thing. Now, um, when it comes to CTA, at this point, I'm not really doing it because of the fact that I was gone so much with Patty uh, throughout the year. It was really hard for them to move forward um, and rehearse and do different things, even though I I did both the records. You know, I was starting to miss some gigs because I'd be gone for extended periods. You know, to be fair to them, they had to make some changes in the bass world and... uh, so it it kind of, you know, I'm not really involved that much anymore. Okay, okay. But do you and Danny Serafin talk with any degree of regularity? Oh, yeah. He he was about a mile away from me. Wow. Yeah. He was in a pizzeria yesterday. So. <laughs> yeah, we're still friends. I mean, you know, it's just, it's it's tough to take. You know, you want to be, you want to be on that, especially being a founding member. Um, you know, nobody wants to get um, excluded, but what, what can you do? You can't be in two places at one time and you have to look at the financial picture, um, uh, the amount of time that you spent with everybody. You have to look at it and make a decision how you're going to go. And, um, yeah, absolutely. Kind of falls, let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listeners, this is now a third bass player on the show who plays an instrument from Boulder Creek guitars back on episode 248. It was Chris Donahue who was talking to me about six or seven hours before going on stage to perform with Emmy Lou Harris. And back on episode 218, Justin Emmerd, the bass player for Love in the 38, was my guest. Like I said, these three bass players all play instruments from Boulder Creek Guitars. Mick? Yeah, they're fantastic. They're actually really unbelievable instruments. Um, so my favorite one that I've ever had. Uh, wow. I shouldn't say one because I have three. 
Wow. But I have a fretless one, and I have a fretted one, and then I have this ukulele one that's just, it's a gorgeous piece of co-wood, uh, real specialty item. You're not going to take it out on every gig. But what I can say is every gig that I take one of these basses on with me, I get so many comp- compliments on it and comments from people that aren't even musical at all. You know, they just are attending and they like music, but they don't know anything about the bass, but they go, that thing is amazing. That's a beautiful instrument. And there's always this comment that comes along with it. Uh, so I'm really happy to play them. Uh, Jeff and Julie are wonderful people and yeah, it couldn't be better. And just the instruments are just so well made. And did you meet Jeff first and that's what drew you to Boulder Creek or was it you were interested in Boulder Creek and thus that led you to to meet Jeff in the process? You know, I'm trying to think of how this went. I think I think I, I was investigating them and I heard about them and then I went to the NAMM show and I met Jeff and Julie and we had talked and then they came out to a couple of Benatar shows when we played in Northern California because uh. they live up there. And, uh, you know, once I had the instrument in my hands, it was like, oh, yeah, this, this, without question, this is the best one I've ever played. <laughs> it doesn't feed back. You don't have the typical issues that you have with a lot of uh, acoustic basses have a tendency to have this uh, low tone that's uh, pervasive, you know, and causes problems when you're mixing for a house. Uh, Boulder Creek doesn't do that, you know. They're just really solid, um, well-made and have this great tone. Listeners, you can find out more about the company at bouldercreekguitars.com. It's B-O-U-L-D-E-R, bouldercreekguitars.com. They do guitars, basses, and ukuleles. And you heard Mick referring to the NAM show last January 2018. That's where I interviewed Justin Emmerd, the bass player for 11 to 38 for episode 218. If you are going to be there, listeners, at the NAM show later this month in Anaheim, do get in touch. I gave out the contact information before. I'll give it out again at the end. But I will be there again at the NAM show in Anaheim later this month. Mick, we're about out of time, and we didn't even get to talk about your formative years. But in fact, you actually, at a young age, got to be on stage with the great Ramsey Lewis. Tell that story, if you don't mind. Jeez, oh, I was... That was wild because I mean I was I think I was in seventh grade mm. and I was I was still playing guitar then, but we had a priest at my school. I went to a Catholic school, and we had a priest that was a former prison priest, and apparently he became really good friends with Ramsey Lewis and called upon his good friend to come play at the church. So I ended up in this band that uh, was just I don't know kind of sitting in I guess you'd call it because. I didn't have any musical experience, and these guys were adults, but they had a couple of his kids play with Ramsey Lewis, you know, got to wow. do in crowd. And uh, it, it was just great, you know, and it's sort of, uh, I guess you'd say, fueled the fire. Mm. <laughs> and I was off to the races in, in the music business. That was it. Never looked back. Then I would ask, you were playing guitar at the time, but but when and how did you switch over to playing bass? Nobody else wanted to play bass. You know, we would have these bands together, and nobody else wanted to do the damn thing. I loved it. I fell in love with it right away. And, and my friend just lent me a bass. Of, I think the, he bought it Woolworths or something like that. It was like wow. a five and nine bass. And so I just fell in love with the instrument. And 
you know, it was a very key time in music when um, Motown was being played on the radio next to Jimi Hendrix, next to Zeppelin. It was just like a key time. You had a, a lot of different styles of music. So the bass really hit me when I heard guys like James Jamerson. And then, of course, John Paul Jones, who was like a James Jamerson type player, only he was playing rock. If you listen to the bass line and ramble on, that's totally an R&B bass line. It's not uh, specifically rock eighth notes or anything like that. So I don't know. The, um, the role of the bass player just appealed to me. I don't mind playing uh, repetition um, of themes and things like that. And you have to have that mindset to be a bass player if you're going to be a meat and potatoes kind of bass player, which is where I'm coming from. I like the statement, though. Nobody wanted to be the bass player. The first picture that came to my head is in hockey. Nobody wants to be the goalie. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. You just have to have that, I guess, sick mind that you want, you want to do that role. And I just you know, never looked back on it and just stayed with the bass because I just thought it was such a cool instrument. Literally never looked back? Or, or is there from time to time when you'll pick up a guitar for, for whatever reason? Oh, I pick up a guitar to write songs and stuff like that, but it's dreadful. I would never approach it. You know, I mean, it's a tool like using a keyboard. I'm not a keyboard player, but I use it to write okay. and things like that. But I would never venture to be the guitar player on that. <laughs> well, we're going to close today with a song called Strangers in Love. Mick, before we let you go, tell the listeners all about this song, please. This song, again, this is this goes way back. I don't know why I picked these two songs. It's not like they're the most current things that I've written, but um, I don't know. They both had really good success. This song was supposed to be recorded by Joe Cocker. Oh. And, uh, yeah, was, uh, and I wish he would have recorded it. But for whatever reason, it just didn't work out. But the song was picked up by uh, publishers right away. It was back in the day when you could sell songs to publishers and they would place them for you. I don't think that happens as much anymore. Um, but I had really good success with that song, so I think that might have been in the back of my mind why I chose it. Very nice. Well, Mick, this has been great. Thank you for your time. We're we're all happy that, that you, you and the pizzeria are safe. All the best in 2019. Maybe we'll see you out there on the road with, with Pat Benatar, but thank you so much for doing this. Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate the support, and I'll see you at the NAMM show. I'll awesome. Be there. Awesome. Listeners, that will do it for another episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. My sincere thanks to bass player Mick Mahan. Do check out his website. It's mickmahan.com. And again, we will have a link to it from the show page for this episode at nhte.net. Social media-wise, like his Facebook page and follow Mick on Instagram. On his website, there is a menu option called Appearances where you can see where and when you can see him perform live. One other online destination to check out is ParmaPizzeriaNapolitana.com. By all means, if you are in or near Thousand Oaks, California, stop in and support Mick by having a meal there. I always want to hear from NHTE listeners. You can write in by emailing podcast at nhte.net or call and leave a voicemail message. That number again is 813-854-8000. As I mentioned before, let me know if you're going to be at the NAM show through one of those or through social media. Thank you very, very much for listening. We'll send you out today with the song that Mick just talked about. This is called Strangers in Love. I remember when 
what's wrong. 